If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Why is a chocolate box Dorset village home to a huge chalk hillside carving of a naked man with a very obvious penis? Our content director, David Musgrove, called doctors Tom Morecambe and Helen Gittos to find out more about the CERN Abbas giant, which has been in the news lately as historians have presented new theories about how old it might be. Today I'm talking to Dr Thomas Morecambe and Dr Helen Gittos, both of Oxford University, about a recent piece of research on the CERN Abbas figure, a huge enigmatic and somewhat rude hill carving, which was previously deemed to be of uh, indeterminate age but has now been precisely dated with interesting results. And that is what we're going to chat about today. So welcome both of you. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, Helen, first thing, can you uh, describe the figure as we have it today for the listeners? Um, Just tell us what it is, its size, um, uh, where it is, and how how much of a task it might have been to create it. 
Yes, it's an extraordinary monument on a on a hillside above a little village in Dorset in southwest England is this enormous and very obviously naked man. And he has been carved into the chalk of the hillside. And so what you see is this huge figure, shining white in an outline um, against the green of the hillside. And he has in one hand this huge club which he's wielding above his head. And his other hand is stretched out um, towards his left. And his feet are sort of facing sideways, like he's in movement. Um, And he's got a very, um, very simply drawn face. And as I say, a very obviously naked body. And he's he's very big. He dominates the, the, the hillside, doesn't he? He's huge. He's so huge that when you're on that hillside, it's actually very hard to see him because the scale is so out of proportion to to an individual person's body. So a, a very obvious uh, landscape feature attracted attention over the last few centuries and people have, uh, have sort of uh, postulated on what it what he might have been and what the date was, but we never really knew. But this, this project just now has come up with a date. So, so Tom, what is the latest dating evidence and, and how did they come to this, uh, to the date that they did? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the technique the National Trust archaeology team was using has the uh, slightly unwieldy name of optically stimulated luminescence which I'm glad I got out. And it's a method for measuring the dose of ionizing radiation and materials received in technical terms, but kind of in a more general sense, is being used to gauge the last time a sediment or mineral was exposed to sunlight. So we're looking here at perhaps a counterpoint to the more well-known radiocarbon dating, but while radiocarbon, which I'm sure many of your audience knows, is only used for organic materials, optically stimulated luminescence is used for minerals and sediments. So it's most regularly used for the dating of ceramics and pottery and things like that. But in this case, it's being used for the most deeply buried sediment of this chalk rubble that Helen just mentioned that makes up the shining white outline of the giant. And because it's the deepest layer, it's the oldest material used when it was first being constructed. And this technique can be very accurate in dating material from 100 to about 350,000 years old. But it does have an uncertainty range of about 5 to 10%. So it's not perfect. And that's why we've got this um, date range for the uh, giant's construction of about 700 to 1100 AD. And this is the early medieval period. And it's notable that this uh, notable dates that roughly mark this span for your audience might be, say, the death of the venerable Bede in 735 on one end, and of course the Battle of Hastings and the Norman Conquest in 1066 on the other. So we're talking about that kind of time span for its construction. So a, a reasonably uh, precise piece of dating, if if 400 years uh, wide. Um, but how does that differ from uh, from the earlier orthodoxy on the, on the dating, Helen? What 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 did people think before this? Well, people have been arguing about this for hundreds of years, and. Um, about 20 years ago, there was um, a big debate about it in the village hall, where um, the debate was essentially, is this a, um, a prehistoric monument? Does it predate the Romans? Is it really very old? Or is it something that's post-medieval? Is it something that's to do with um, Cromwell or um, uh, the very recent past? And I think that's the dating that had become the orthodoxy. So people thought it was probably 
300 or so years old um, and that it wasn't actually something very ancient. And, and I guess part of the logic there is is the actual uh, first historic reference to it, where the first actual recorded reference. So so when when do we actually have it mentioned in a documented source? So this, this is very interesting, considering people for a long time thought this was an ancient monument of some kind. Our first certain written reference to it is in November of 1694, um, in a entry bizarrely of the accounts of a church warden for the repair of the giant three shillings. So um, that's our first mef- method or reference. So it does suggest the giant obviously pre-exists this in that it's being repaired. Um, but this then leads to kind of an explosion of 18th century accounts. We've got the Bishop of Bristol on a canonical visit to CERN in 1734, makes a note of the giant. And on the basis of the bishop's account, then the Society of Antiquaries of London uh, discussed the figure in 1764. And we then see it popping up in magazines of the period, uh, perhaps most fittingly, the Gentleman's Magazine in um, 1764 as well, which is our earliest first drawing of the giant and the giant figure at that point. Okay, so uh, end of the 17th century is when we first start have it started talking about, and we'll come back to that uh, towards the end of the conversation. Right, so I'm just going to quote you a, a little bit from the uh, National Trust senior archaeologist who worked on this dating project, a chap called Martin Papworth. He's quoted as saying this, uh, this probable Saxon date places uh, the giant in a dramatic part of CERN history. Nearby CERN Abbey was founded in 987 AD, and some sources think the abbey was set up to convert the locals from the worship of an early Anglo-Saxon god called Hyle or Helleth. Um, the early part of our date range does invite the question, was the giant originally a depiction of that god? Helen, what do you think about that? I think that by the time the monastery was built... This was a very, very Christianized population. So for two or three hundred years, they would have been living in a landscape that was populated by churches. Um, Almost the whole of the population of southern Britain would have been within walking distance of a church, would have been familiar with churches. One of the things that we know very clearly is that the Anglo-Saxons really took to their heart the idea of baptism and of godparenthood. And they established a whole um, series of names for the relationships that were created through standing as godparents to the baptism of a child. In other words, Christianity, I would argue, actually is something that's not being imposed upon a lot of this population. And that actually there was a huge amount of um, interest in Christianity, which we have tended to downplay. And that came along with a continuity of traditional ideas. So this is sometimes Christianity that looks pretty odd and has taken us as historians quite a long time to recognise that that's what we were looking at. Um, But in other words, by the time you get to the foundation of the monastery in the 10th century, you're looking at a, a population that had been Christian for a very long time. And what do we know about Cern uh, Abbey at this point? Is it is it with sort of within view of the of the uh, giant? So one of the interesting things about the village is that you're not actually aware of the giant once you're in it. So as you're approaching the village, the giant is very dominant in the landscape. But once you're actually there, 
you can't see it and it's not really clear to you where it is. It's quite close to the monastic site on the hillside above it, but round a corner so that the monastery itself feels quite a long way away. Right. Now, now, Tom, um, it's, it's a really interesting uh, thing that's happened here. So this, this new story came out and then a bunch of academics started talking about this on social media and, and on Twitter specifically. And on Twitter, you you suggested that you uh, you think that the figure might be uh, Saint Eadwald. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm not. Uh, the local saint of, of CERN. So uh, so who was Eadwald and, and what's the argument based on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think kind of to foreground this, it's to say he may seem quite an obscure figure to a modern audience now, but Edwald was the spiritual and economic centre of CERN at this point, the kind of early medieval period. Um, the move of Edwald's relics to CERN uh, contributed it to becoming the third richest monastery in England by 1086. It was the centre of local worship and the centre of the monastery's fortunes. So yes, an obscure figure now, but uh, in this area of Dorset may well have been a household name for the general population. So we're talking about a well-known figure. Who was St. Aidwald? Well, he's a um, West Anglian prince in our accounts and the brother to the slightly more well-known St. Edmund, king and martyr of East Anglia, who meets his horrible fate being tied to a tree and shot full of arrows by Vikings. And um, Aidwald, in comparison, moves to Dorset, uh, casts off his princely lifestyle and lives sparsely as a hermit in the hills on bread and water. And we have... The majority of our information on Aidwald from hagiographies, which are texts that narrate the lives of saints, and they focus on their piety and the miracles they perform and things like this. And in the case of the life of St. Aidwald, the historian Tom License has put together a really convincing case that it was written by a figure called Gosselin of Saint-Bartin, who's one of the most prolific writers on saints of the 11th century, and who for a time resided at the Priory at Sherburne, only about 10 miles from CERN. And I think we're, we can say he's highly likely to have visited. So to get to my kind of theory and the point I'm making, in his life of Aidwald, Gosselin recounts that Aidwald is sent a vision of God, of by God rather, of a silver fountain, which would mark the place where he could devote himself fully to a kind of pious, pious prayer and worship. Then, crucially for us, we're told that Aidwald plants his staff at the top of a sloping hill and miraculously it begins to grow branches and sprouts into a living ash tree. At this point, he sees the promised fountain flowing at the bottom of the hill and he establishes his hermitage there. So the case I was trying to make on Twitter and uh, continuing to make here is that uh, in the case of the CERN giant, what's being depicted isn't a giant brandishing a large nobbled club, but rather perhaps a holy man whose pilgrim staff is in the process of blossoming and sprouting into a living tree. And I think it's important to point out, just as Helen was mentioning a second ago, that at the bottom of the sloping hill onto which the giant is cut is a holy well, or silver fountain, if you like, that falls within the grounds of where the medieval monastery once stood. So I think there's a strong argument to be made for Gosselin responding to this specific configuration in the landscape of hill figure, holy well, and monastery when he was writing his life of St. Aidwald. And that's the primary evidence, I think, for suggesting Aidwald as a potential and a potentially good candidate for the giant's identity. 
It's a fascinating theory. I just wonder, did you did you think that before the dating evidence had come to light? Was that something that occurred to you, or was, it, or was that brand new? You thought, well, blimey, hold on, there's a link there. No, it really was sort of, when there's such a wide range of potential dating options, it's so hard to pin it to kind of a potentially long history of the Dorset area. It really was only when we got this comparatively narrow range that I sort of went back through what was happening in Dorset at that period, what was happening in CERN. And it was such an enormous figure at the time. It's really easy to see him being written into the landscape, just like he was being written into the uh, local saints' lives and history at a kind of contemporary time as well. Uh, Helen, if, if it was this chap, if it was um, Aidworld, why, why, would they, why, would they make, why would they carve him into the hillside? Would it have been some sort of tourist sign for pilgrims so they knew where to come? Or is it doing something more interesting than that? Well, I think we suspect that it's actually an older carving that has been reinterpreted as being the saint. So the shape of his face is very distinctive. It's a bit like a raindrop with a very narrow chin. And that sort of face shape is quite common on 7th century Anglo-Saxon faces. So in the Sutton Hoo ship burial, there is um, uh, what's known as a scepter, something we're not really sure what it was for, and it has this shape carved in it. And it looks very like the shape of the CERN giant man's face. And we also have another hillside carving, card figure at Wilmington in Sussex. And that looks like it might be of an early Anglo-Saxon date. And the final piece of important information is that it he looks like Hercules. He looks like a classical god. And the way that he's depicted is very akin to the way that Hercules is often depicted with a club. Um, and so what seems most likely is that this is a figure perhaps carved at the earlier end of the date range, which Gosselin and the monastery are then telling a story about and integrating into their understanding of their saint and his life. Okay, so that's very interesting. So we've suddenly got a, a sort of a, a two-tone uh, story here. Um, so that, that suggests that, do, do we think they would have changed the shape of the, of the figure over time then, or did they just sort of change the way they understood it? Yes, so certainly we've had studies in 1996 and 2008 that suggest the giant originally had a cloak draped beneath its left arm and potentially a severed head by its side, which I think lends real credence to what Helen's saying here, that this is potentially an original depiction of Hercules uh, in the act perhaps of slaying the Nemean lion. Uh, perhaps it's a good call for that. And I think it gives a lot of credence to that. But these... Um, features were intentionally erased at some point. And I think it's really important that more research is done perhaps on these features to work out exactly when they were erased so we get a bit more of a sense of who was doing that erasing. But it would be um, very attractive, certainly from the point of view of my theory, to think of that as something happening in the 10th and 11th century as we get this conversion from heroic classical figure to local saint and hermit the features that might have distinguished him more as a Herculean figure are removed. So he fits better with this narrative that's being established around a local saint and hermit transfiguring a staff into a tree. 
Thank you. And then just thinking about uh, how visible this figure would actually have been. Um, Helen, uh, in the uh, in the Twitter conversation, Professor Howard Williams at, uh, of Chester University, um, he, he talked about the possibility that this might have been a polychrome figure in some way. I mean, you look at it now and it's very clear, it's shiny white and sticks out from the, from the green grass around. Is there any chance that it could have been colourful? I think it's possible. We, we have got used as Anglo-Saxonists to thinking about things which we now see without their paint and without their decoration and realising that we have to imagine them as being much more colourful. So it's conceivable. Um, I don't personally think it's very likely, but, um, but one of the interesting things about the dating samples is that it does at the moment hint at exactly the sort of scenario that Tom has suggested, that some of the samples could be quite early, circa 700, but a couple of the other samples indicate that you're looking at something that's more 10th and 11th century. And that might suggest then a figure that has been altered. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It's interesting to note that many Victorian depictions of the giant himself don't feature the phallus. It's, uh, it's removed from their illustrations because of moral sensibilities of the period. But this wasn't a concern for a uh, medieval audience or a medieval artist. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbour, State Farm is there. 
Now, look, there's there's an elephant in the room here, and it is quite an elephantine thing. Uh, we haven't talked about the appendage, the uh, the prominent appendage on the giant. Well, I mean, how does that fit into this story? What what is that all about, and uh, how does that how does that fit with your theory, Tom? Well, no, exactly. I think kind of the central criticism of this idea, both on Twitter and I think in most people's minds, would be, well, if you're talking about a hermit, why does he have this enormously prominent phallus? And I think, first off, you'd want to mention that in the medieval period, it was perhaps not quite as prominent. Um, The uh, penis was extended, possibly even as late as the early 20th century, to incorporate a pre-existing navel. The giant had a belly button that's now been sort of subsumed into the phallus. And, but more to the point of the argument I'm making, the nakedness of hermits was often seen as a sign of holiness. Uh, contemporary rules for how they would conduct themselves or live their life mentioned them going naked in imitation of Christ and the evangelists, or living naked as a means of casting off worldly goods, or uh, returning to kind of the blessed innocence of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden pre-fall. And we have the... Uh, old English poem Daniel, in which spiritual penance in the wilderness is described as walking naked in misery. So we've got good evidence, I think, for hermits and nudity being coupled in this way. And especially when I think we couple this with one other feature of the CERN giant, which is he has exposed ribs. You can see his rib cage uh, on his sides. We might think of this combination of nudity and emaciation as quite fitting for a stylized representation of a hermit hermit suffering piously in the wilderness. Um, But I think it's also just generally more important to note that even monks of this period weren't prudes, and nor was there a hard distinction between the erotic and the spiritual in a way that might be expected. So in the Exeter book, for instance, which is a compendium of old English poems written almost certainly in a monastic context, we find bawdy riddles with answers such as which are meant to be an onion or a key, but both both of which are absolutely full of innuendo to try and trick the reader into believing the solution in both cases is in fact a penis. And these riddles existed alongside poetry dealing with enormously serious theological matters, right up to and including the crucifixion of Christ, without any censor or comment. So I think views that monks of this period are prim or overly innocent when it comes to the representation of genitals or sex are slightly misguided i think and and just thinking about it uh on our website uh, professor george garnett wrote a piece uh, a little while ago about the uh, preapic predilection of the person or the people who uh, produced the biotapestry so towards the end of our period but um there's quite a lot of this sort of thing in there so i suppose it's just uh, it's part and parcel of of uh, of the way that life and art was depicted then absolutely and it's um a pit, something perhaps that uh, we're still dealing with the fallout of Victorian squeamishness about rather than uh, any medieval sensibility. It's interesting to note that many Victorian depictions of the giant himself don't feature the phallus. It's, uh, it's removed from their illustrations because of moral sensibilities of the period. But this wasn't a concern for a uh, medieval audience or a medieval artist, I don't think. Okay, so we've got a story now where we've got an earlier symbol, an earlier carving, which is then co-opted into 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 the Christian uh, imagery. So, uh, Helen, you mentioned the, the Wilmington Man there um, earlier, and I think you, you've suggested that both CERN and the Wilmington Man could have been tribal emblems of some sort in the in the earlier period, in the what are we talking seventh century, eighth century, something like that. Um, it, so, so just 
give us a bit more on that and, and tell us how far this is part of a wider tradition. Are there any other sort of these sorts of carvings that, that were available uh, that we're familiar with? These carvings are pretty unusual. So we have the very famous one of a horse um, uh, in, in Wiltshire, also in southern England, in Berkshire. But it is um, a much earlier monument. It's, it's a Bronze Age uh, carving. And other than these, um, there isn't really anything else to put them with. But the Wilmington man is like a dancing warrior. So he has two spears, which he's holding in either hand that are as long as his body. And he's got dancing feet. And that image of a dancing warrior appears on, um, especially on, on warrior helmets. So on the Sutton Hoo helmets, much smaller scale, you've got these little dancing warriors. And you've got them on Swedish helmets from the same time as well. Um, and there's a, a beautiful buckle, a gold buckle, belt buckle from Kent, which has got one of these dancing warriors on them. And they, they're almost like emblems of some kind and we know that um they remind me a bit of the sort of animals that we can see acting in very apotropaic protective ways but also as tribal emblems so on the crests of the um helmets that these warriors in this society were wearing there were wild boars um, even around the doorways of churches, you've got animals being carved. And so what I wonder is whether we should think about these things as being in some way um, part of their ancestral stories, that this is something to do with the tribal identity of these people in this region and the origin myths that they're telling about themselves. So in some way, part of a process of laying claim to the land, perhaps, as well? That's right. That's right. And, and one of the things that's interesting about this monument is that it's very hard to see from the valley. It's much clearer to see from the top of the hill opposite. And it immediately makes you want to know more about why there. And I think in all of the conversations that we've had so far, that basic question, why CERN, why CERN Abbas, why this place, has not really been properly explained. And so um, this, this, this approach would allow for that sort of explanation if you, if you suggest that it's uh, in some way recording legend or, or, or some sort of folk memory, but which, which we wouldn't necessarily know what that is? One of the really interesting things about this region is that actually our understanding of the Anglo-Saxon period in it is quite poor because we don't have much archaeology. And we don't seem to have much archaeology because much of our archaeology from this period comes from the burials because people were being buried with a lot of grave goods. And that gives us a lot of clues about them. And in this region at this time, um, that doesn't seem to have been happening. Um, and so actually our understanding of the, the historical context, particularly of the earlier period of the 8th century, when this monument might first have been carved, is quite poor. But we do have some clues. And some of those clues indicate an interest, um, as uh, Barbara York, um, an Anglo-Saxon historian, has, has talked about, that West Saxon kings were particularly interested in Hercules and in the god Hercules. And so we have um, a writer who was Bishop Oldhelm, who was Bishop of Sherborne, only 10 miles away from CERN, who is writing about 
Hercules amongst his list of um, his book of monsters. And we also have um, the Old English Boethius, which it claims to have been written by King Alfred, which also has stories about Hercules in it. So was that one of the myths that West Saxon kings wanted to associate themselves with? We can't take it that far, but it begins to look suggestive. That's that's really exciting, isn't it? But I suppose that the odd thing here is um, if this figure was um, an important part of, of the later um, uh, Christian uh, tradition of, of what's going on in CERN, why why isn't anyone talking about it? Why don't we get a reference to it until the end of the seventeenth century? It's it's weird that no one no one mentions it. What what's what's the what's the logic there, Tom? It's fascinating, isn't it? And it's a little bit of a mystery. But I think there's almost a case to be made for the fact that if something is such a central part of your landscape and such a uh, intrinsic part of your everyday life, how much do you need to record and reference it when it feels like another feature, like a valley or the river around it? There's also a case for it um, falling into repeated disrepair. Um, There's the idea that this sort of um, hill figure needs constant maintenance, perhaps why we have so few of them, is that they can very easily become overgrown and then lost. Which I think is fascinating for the kind of points we're making here about constant reinterpretation of the giant. The idea that in different points in its long history, it's been uncovered, recut and repurposed from Hercules to Aidwell to maybe even Cromwell later, a sort of satirical depiction of Oliver Cromwell as kind of a mock Hercules. But that doesn't necessarily disqualify earlier interpretations. It's this idea of reacquisition of the giant at different points by different people as part of the popular history of this, this area of Dorset that I think is so fascinating for our discussion. So it was really interesting sort of following the uh, the social media conversation about this. And, uh, you know, you posed the, the first idea and then lots of people started chipping in and coming up with different ideas and sort of expanding the research there. And then it was it was really exciting to see academic research in work. Um, has it prompted any sort of future research ideas for you two? Any any things that you think would uh, would uh, demand further um, investigation? Well, it was wonderful, yes. I mean, the kind of the moment of other people contributing. And I want to thank everyone who sort of expanded the idea in such interesting ways and on such interdisciplinary lines, seeing archaeologists, historians and literary scholars working together to build a comprehensive case and challenge elements of a case in real time, I think is fantastic. Um, So much of humanity's research is solitary or kind of done quietly in a dusty library, perhaps. So the ability to work with colleagues from all over the world in this sort of discussion was hugely exciting. And it's really, I think, going to lead to some fantastic research directions in relation to the giant, the uh, Benedictine reform and monastic culture in this area of Dorset. And I'm looking forward to seeing what people write coming out of these discussions going forward. But this kind of open access academic discussion is so, so valuable for all of us. That's right, because you're in the Faculty of English. Helen, you're in, in the Faculty of History. So that's just one example of the interdisciplinary element there. Helen, do you think, uh, do you think all future research should be conducted on social media and, uh, and we, should be, uh, we should be exploring things in that way? It was very exciting. And it was exciting because it was a very open conversation. So although Tom and I work a few hundred metres for each other, we'd never actually met each other. And it was only through that conversation that we were able to realise the synergies in our work. 
Uh, and I really enjoyed the opportunity of being able to talk to specialists in so many fields, but also people who are not professionally involved in, in doing this stuff, but whose questions were really interesting and really helpful. That was Helen Gittos and Tom Morecambe from the University of Oxford. The CERN Abyss Giant is in the care of the National Trust. And if COVID restrictions allow, it makes for an excellent place to visit. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow when we'll have the latest episode in our series on Britain's greatest prime ministers. (laughs) 